Welcome to the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast, where we break down the practical strategies of this emerging science, starting with healthy light habits and going wherever the quantum superhighway takes us. This is your host, executive and life coach, Meredith Oak, with a quick announcement. If you're a practitioner, that means you work with clients or patients in any capacity in the health and wellness space. Please take note, the Applied Quantum Biology Certification closes November 30th. The doors are closing and they will not be open again until spring 2024 at the earliest. If you're at all drawn to this material, you do not want to miss this opportunity. We go deep into the science with clinically experienced teachers, as well as a community of people who are all doing the same thing. It is incredible. Go to AppliedQuantumBiology.com to register. The link is in the show notes. Don't miss it. Welcome to episode 50 for our big 5-0. We are going to talk about a topic that I've had a lot of requests to cover, and that is menopause. Now, you might be tempted to skip this episode if you're not a woman of a certain age and think that this has nothing to do with you, which is how I thought for a long time, and I was very wrong. Um, Unless you live in a monastery or a some other kind of female-free environment, uh, understanding the basic ideas of what's going on during menopause is extraordinarily helpful to your life. So if you have women in your life, even if you're not one, or even if menopause seems like something decades down the road that you don't really want to think about, um, I encourage you to listen anyway, because A, all of the um, protocols that we go over that help make menopause smoother uh, are actually really good to start as early in life as possible. And they help with everything, not just menopause. And also it really does help to understand what is going on uh, with the women around you so that you um, can have a more harmonious relational environment um, and understand what's happening as people go through different phases of life. So who's going to cover menopause with us? Uh, one of my favorites, Dr. Candace Knight. This is her second time on the podcast. If you haven't listened to the first episode with her, I really recommend that. It's episode number 35. And Candace in that episode walks through her journey from being a traditional uh, medical doctor to studying integrative Uh, medicine and then coming out all the way to the other side and studying quantum effects in the body and doing a very deep dive into circadian rhythm and light. And so she brings all of that wisdom um, to this topic. She sees a lot, a lot of women in her practice. She has a longevity practice uh, in person and virtual. I would also recommend, and you'll see why I'm recommending this after you listen to the episode, to go back and listen again, or if you haven't listened to it, I definitely do that, do this is to listen to episode number 36 with Carrie Bennett and we cover adrenal fatigue. And you'll see why the connection between these two episodes is so important when you listen to this one. So without further ado, here is my very fun, very informative conversation with Dr. Candace Knight on the circadian secrets to a smoother menopause. Dr. Candace Knight, welcome to the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast for the second time. We're so excited to have you and to talk about the topic of menopause. Mm -hmm. So I had people write in and request to cover this topic from 
from the quantum biology perspective. And I think you're the perfect person to do that. So thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Excited to talk about this. <laughs> okay, so let's set the stage. First of all, I want to say this is a topic that I tended to avoid because I didn't want to think about it having anything to do with me. <laughs> But I've now reached an age where that's not an option. So I'm I'm really interested in learning as much as I can to sort of set the stage for the for the years to come. And so I wanted to start just with sort of a, ge- a general overview of what we're talking about when we say menopause, when we say perimenopause, and you know, the cycle of women's hormones from from puberty through to to this phase of life. Like what's happening? Sure. <clears throat> so at the onset of a woman's reproductive years, what we, you know, would consider to be puberty, what's happening? I sort of think about it like um a crescendo de crescendo, basically. So we have this baseline when we're really young, where we don't really have a lot of um reproductive hormones, particularly um female hormones, you know, at least in abundance, right? And then as we enter those uh, preteen, teen years, what happens is that you start to see a revving up, so to speak. And many people remember when they were first experiencing their first cycle, how there was a lot of irregularity there because these hormones um, are trying to establish their relationship with one another, right? So pretty much anything in the endocrine system has a check and balance. We have a gas and a break constantly. So as these two hormones in particular, estrogen and progesterone are trying to figure out like, okay, how do I orchestrate with each other to have, you know, what we would consider a normal menstrual cycle that's designed to develop a follicle, release that follicle, get the uterus ready for implantation, et cetera. So you see this rev up period where, you know, young women will say like, hey, you know, I just got my first cycle, but they might not start getting one every month immediately. And that can last for a few years, depending on what age that we're seeing menstrual cycles, which we're seeing onset younger and younger now, which is a whole nother conversation. But you see this rev up and then everything starts to kind of balance out and we kind of hang there during our reproductive years, right? So we have, ideally, this is not the case, but we have, ideally, we have nice, balanced, smooth, orchestrated menstrual cycles that, you know, each month are preparing for a baby. And if you don't have one, then this whole cycle starts over again. As we enter perimenopause, um, it's not an exact science, of course, but you start to see a wind down. And most of the time during perimenopause, what we're seeing go first is the progesterone. So women um, often have symptoms that mimic, I guess, what we would consider to be a premenstrual syndrome, which same concept. There's a there's a disconnect between the balance of estrogen and progesterone. And normally it's the progesterone that's starting to drop. As we enter menopause, you start to see a dip in both hormones to the point that after a year of no menstrual cycle, we consider that menopause. There are other things in the um, labs that I assess as well to help me confirm that for a woman, because you know there are other things that can go on that would cause a cycle to go away. And um, it can be a little bit tricky to differentiate that on symptomatology alone if you're in your 40s in particular. So we we can we have ways of fleshing that out. But that's essentially what happens is that we go from not much to a rev up and then we come back down as we no longer need the ovary to prepare for growing a baby. Okay. 
So um, it, let's just talk about the the kind of ideal if everything's working perfectly the way nature intended mm-hmm. that the the hormones start to change as we get a little bit older and move out of our childbearing years and in an ideal situation you have a gradual decrease and then it kind of trails off and would you have if if everything was working smoothly well, again, this is the hypothetical ideal. Right. Would there be a lot of symptoms or could, can, is there a, a scenario what, where it's like just a gradual gentle shift? Yes. So in an ideal scenario, there would be a gradual gentle shift. So, okay. um, and I struggled with this for look quite some time when I first left the conventional model and was studying um, integrative medicine. I initially didn't even want to give hormone replacement therapy because in my mind I was like, you know, nature doesn't make mistakes. So why would you, why would every woman need to have hormone replacement therapy? And because I had developed relationships with my women, they were like, Dr. Knight, I don't want to see anybody else. I want you to do it. So I had to reach out to one of my mentors that taught me about hormone replacement therapy. And um, thankfully she said, you know, Katie, you're right. Nature didn't make mistakes, but let me ask you a question. What organ takes over hormone production after Uh, during menopause and and, in the later part of a female's life. And I said, well, it switches from the ovary to the adrenal gland. And then she didn't even really have to say much else beyond that because I was like, oh, Uh, (laughs) oh, okay. uh. So what typically happens is um, during our reproductive years, the ovaries are really in charge of that hormone production, sex hormone production, because it's produced at a much higher rate and um, we need enough to be able to support a pregnancy. But after menopause, when we no longer need the ovary driving the ship, so to speak, um, the adrenal gland is supposed to pick up the slack. And we are still converting those hormones from pregnenolone to make estrogen and progesterone, but we're doing it at a much lesser rate, enough of a rate to mitigate a lot of the symptoms that we are associating with menopause, but um, not enough to support a pregnancy. And this really is something that we were not talked about, we didn't talk about this in medical school because it, from the perspective of conventional medicine, you have some and then there's none. But yeah. in reality, when you look at the basic science um, literature, you can see that there actually is ideally still some production, which is why there are women that do not need hormone replacement therapy from the standpoint of Maintenance of bone, cardiovascular health, a lot of those things, a lot of the dryness that women experience, we brain fog, right? They, they don't complain about that. And I have firsthand experience with that scenario as well, because one of my children had a nanny that was from um, the Caribbean. She was from Montserrat. And she would joke with me about how, child, <laughs> have those symptoms? I don't know what you're talking about, this menopause. I don't know anybody that had those symptoms, but... When I think about how she lived, I mean, she truly did live a circadian respective life. And um, I think about a lot of the habits that she had. And it suddenly, you know, now looking at it from that lens makes sense. I did not have that perspective then, but I assumed it had something to do with how insane she was, um, how stress free she was and her perspective on life. I mean, now I understand from the way that she lived and from what we know now about quantum biology, why she really wasn't symptomatic. And I had a mentor explain that to me as well, you know, based on the burdens that we deal with, particularly in Western society, 
why the majority of women do benefit from from assistance during that time period to mitigate those symptoms. But even from her perspective, and she was not a quantum doctor, told me that most of us, for lack of a better way of explaining it from their perspective, was that we fried our adrenal glands by the time we're middle aged. And so because that yeah. organ is supposed to pick up the slack, it just doesn't have the energy right. to do so. I've never heard it put like that. But as soon as you said that, I had that that same aha <laughs> moment. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, crap. If it's the adrenals that are supposed to be helping out, they're already just flattened for so many women, even even way before we're talking peri or menopause time. And so that would make the symptoms of menopause, like I would imagine quite extreme and excruciating if the organ that's meant to help support that time is completely burned out. A hundred percent. Yep. Oh man. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about those symptoms. So we, so we talked about like, if you are living like your, your child's nanny, right? She lived in, she lived on an Island in the Caribbean. She got up with the sun. She grew her own food. She had a robust spiritual life. She was, she was cheerful. (laughs) She didn't take things too seriously. And she was like, what menopause symptoms? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. So on the one end we have her. And then on the other hand, tell me about the women that you see in your practice. And let's, let's take somebody who's, uh, maybe look at somebody who's having like a moderately hard time. And then somebody who's like, just really under the bus with it. What What are the types of things that you're seeing? So from typical menopause symptoms, women are coming in noticing some changes in their libido. Um, They're noticing some changes in the moisture Mm -hmm. in the vagina. Um, The other thing, believe it or not, that I see pretty commonly is what I call a tip of the tongue syndrome because they feel like it's not even necessarily brain fog, so to speak, maybe a little bit. And they may label it that way. But when you kind of dig into it, they tell me that like, I know what I want to say. And it's like on the tip of my tongue and I can't retrieve the information. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> and we start to see that a little bit. Now, okay. of course, there's other why that can happen, but but yeah. estrogen is responsible for um, memory in women, the way that testosterone is for men. And so you can start to see mm. a little bit of less of a lack of focus and like just, you know, trouble retrieving information sometimes. And fatigue, you know, I do see some fatigue in those women. So if I'm talking about like one of the mill, you know, that's the big things that bring them in. They notice like some, maybe some changes in their metabolism, their weight's changing a little bit. Um, their hair is changing a little bit. Their skin maybe it'll be a little bit dry. Um, a lot of times, you know, the point of contention, especially if they are with a partner is, you know, why are you not interested in sex anymore? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Those kind of things. And then they'll tell me like, either I'm just not in the mood, the sensations changed or it's painful, you know? And so that drives the conversation of actually doing something about it. Because I think that, especially with women, we're so used to surviving that um, we don't necessarily come in for, you know, brain fog or things like that. You know, we we might yeah. notice some of these changes, but I don't think a lot of women associate that with this time period. But when we start noticing, hey, like I actually have no interest in sex or I have no um, sensation down there, 
um, or I'm in pain, then, you know, they come in and we have that conversation. Right. Yeah. Cause that can be really hard on the relationship. And absolutely I've noticed I've noticed over the years that like, there's often a spate of divorces in couples when the, when their children are in their mid twenties. Yes. <laughs> and I, I've been listening to a lot of menopause podcasts to prepare for this. And I've been wondering if that isn't part of it, right? Like if your sex life, if your sex life dies, that might, that's going to impact the relationship. Absolutely. And then you don't have as much progesterone around. So you're a little bit irritable and you're grumpy. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have this person that's not interested in sex. (laughs) In fact, I cannot tell you, this has happened to me a couple of times, actually, several times over the years where I've had women come in and tell me, like, I'm getting a divorce. And they've been with this person forever. And when you start digging into um, what's going on, I can think about one in particular when we first opened the practice. And she couldn't really say much about, like, how horrible of a person her husband was all of a sudden. But it was just like petty things, like working on her nerves. And I mm-hmm. said, to my neighbor, this was our intro visit. I was like, mm-hmm. can we look at your hormones first? And like, yeah. check that out before, before you get a divorce. <laughs> and um, yes, they're still together. Right. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. You know, cause it really like, I, I didn't put it together, but I did like in my own personal life, there was, you know, when I was a child, there was like a group of us whose parents were all divorced and there's, and then the other half of the friend group, not divorced. And then age 25 to 30, half of the half of the marrieds got divorced. Like all these marriages started to fall apart. And, you know, we tend to think of menopause as like a women's issue and a, you know, a women's, you, you got to go deal with your symptoms, but yeah, I think this is really crucial. This, the relationship piece, and you've got another 30 years of life. A hundred percent. And you don't want them giving up relationships that, you know, were loving and supportive and healthy. And now it's just, it's almost like, you know how it is. I mean, misery loves company. Like you're, you don't feel right. So all of a sudden you start seeing little things that wouldn't have bothered you before, but you got to blame somebody for the reason of what did you feel? Yes. And, um, Who's the best person, the person closest to you? I'd yeah, say, absolutely. I've this with my kids, Meredith, because my two sons, are trying to raise them to be mindful young men. So they sometimes come in with their teachers and they'll be like, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is just so grumpy today. And I don't know, I don't know what her problem is. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so let's talk about hormones during a woman's middle age. But what happens? Right. Give her love and compassion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> good for you it's a rough time period in the woman's life during that time yeah oh I'm having a moment now because yeah one of my kids is it's like and I didn't put it together till just this minute but she is just like off the rails like I have yeah. an email drafted about the teacher and in <laughs> 17 years I've never written I've never written an email about a teacher and I'm like this woman is losing her mind in the classroom yes yeah so this is, yeah, and I I think that's something else. And I almost like didn't want to call this the menopause episode because everyone was just like, oh, that, you know, it'll hit for some people, but everyone else be like, oh, this isn't for me. But like, you're so right. Like, this is this is something that like we all need to kind of get. 
Absolutely. You know, I mean, Data and I laugh about it sometimes when we're out because like, you know, you may be at a restaurant, you may be at the grocery store and like someone just is not right, so to speak. Yeah. And we just look at each other now and we understand. And we just say, um, when we get there, can you please just, you know, help redirect me and remind me that I might need to get checked out. I might (laughs) consider. Taking it to account. Yes. So everyone listening to this, even if you're not at this phase, past this phase, or you're a man, this still all matters. Yes. And um, okay. Oh, I did want to ask about men's hormones. Maybe we can do that a bit later. Do they do they go through something in middle age? <clears throat> we'll just do can. it now. They yeah. can. Okay, but it's it's much different because men are not designed necessarily to have a change in their reproductive capability. So all of these, um, all of these glands that produce hormones, needless to say, what's really driving them beneath the surface is is their mitochondria. So um, if you have unhealthy mitochondria that again, you've abused to some point, then those men, even though we haven't necessarily moved production to a different organ, the mm-hmm. testicles still still making testosterone. Um, for the same reason, you can see what I like to call menopause, right? Where okay. some men you can see a little bit of a dip, and it's the same concept. It just depends how much they've burned things out, but they have a lot more resilience than women do, because mm-hmm. we don't have as drastic of they don't have as drastic of a change that we do. They are still right. technically capable of making a baby till the day that they die, unlike us, right? Yeah. And they don't have that, that shift that is just blowing my mind from like to, to the, to the adrenals. They're just doing their thing. Okay. So then I wanted, so we talked about, um, the libido and vaginal dryness and how that can impact not just a sex life, but a relationship and all kinds of things. And then you mentioned, um, brain fog and the tip of the tongue syndrome and how those two things are different. And I want to talk about that for a sec, because I've totally get what you're saying. So I had, um, chronic fatigue for Mm -hmm. a number of years. Right. And like, that was brain fog. It was like, yes, it was like, there was nothing there. Like, it was like, like (laughs) I would go to think and it was like, sorry, no, (laughs) like it was just like shut off. It was, yeah. Like the brain fog is accurate. It's like the fog had rolled in and I just couldn't see anything. And then you were making this really nice nuanced distinction between that and the tip of the tongue syndrome. And that I've noticed has been happening to me lately. And, and I've been thinking about it because I'm like, this isn't brain fog. It's not the same thing. It's like, it's like, it's right there. It's like, I know it's like, it's not lost in the fog. It's right there, but I can't touch it. And I'll turn to my husband. I'll be like, what's the name of the blah, blah, blah. And it'll be like some really obvious name. And he's like, uh, uh, you're not remembering that. I'm like, just go with it. Okay. No, I'm not. <laughs> so what's, if you want to talk about that a little. Sure. So basically, um, the hippocampus and the brain is for women we have um, estrogen has an impact on its function, right? So when we talk about tip of the tongue syndrome, we're talking about a specific um, specific complaint respective of memory. But when we talk about brain fog, people explain that to me like I'm thinking through cotton, you know, like my feeling like yeah. there's a film over my brain, there's a fog over yeah. every, it's not even necessarily memory in that case. It's just that, I mean, processing is slowed. Like you just feel like I'm, 
I'm all around, not as clear, so to speak. Yes. And when you think about the fact that the central nervous system is, um, it needs a whole lot of energy to run constantly, right? The autonomics that we take for granted every single day. So you have a significant amount of mitochondria there. And a lot of times when there's um, an energy deficit in general, when your batteries aren't fully charged, you can see brain fog present itself, right? So even from side effects of certain medications, for example, the big one is the statins. We know that statins interfere with mitochondrial production because of their impact on CoQ10. And um, even then I have patients complain about brain fog, but they don't necessarily associate it with the medication. Because again, this brain we take for granted that like it needs a lot of energy to do all of its responsibilities. And so if there's a deficit there because of the amount of mitochondria that it has, it's oftentimes one of the first places that we'll see symptoms in someone that has a deficit in that department. But what we're talking about with menopause is very specific to it, to the hormone itself. And look, Meredith, there honestly is a lot of crossover between it because, um, Hormones for us and mitochondria have a lot of interdependence on each other. You know, you need Mm -hmm. mitochondria to make the hormones. It's often the site in the gland where it's made. But then a healthy hormone balance drives optimal mitochondrial function. So so this is a a very nuanced conversation that I think the average person probably wouldn't differentiate. But and at the end of the day, the way I look at it is if I'm having someone of the age where there's a possibility that they're not producing enough estrogen. It's definitely something that I'm going to evaluate when I'm looking at them underneath the surface. But, um, but let's face it beneath that still is a mitochondrial problem. Yeah. Okay. And so now, so now we're getting to, to the root cause (laughs) of, of all of everything um, with the exception of, you know, rare genetic disorders, but for all, for most of the chronic symptomatic situations that we find ourselves in, in the modern day, whether it's fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, or you name it, we're talking about mitochondrial dysfunction as a root cause. And that would, and that includes menopause. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. So the practice of medicine now for me has changed entirely since um, I've become a quantum doctor, because like you said, that's what's at the root of everything. But there's a whole lot of complex chemistry happening, right? That's 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 driving all of this, depending on what somebody comes in for. So even though when I go far enough upstream, here's the mm-hmm. mitochondria. But when I can explain to the patient why it's relevant to that particular complaint, mm-hmm. then suddenly it becomes a lot easier to take in the advice that we give them. Because when you're having a conversation about, again, same thing, circadian rhythm, yeah. You know, eating seasonally, timing, timing sleep, why that's important, all of the artificial light that interferes with it, all of those things, pick a topic, right? All the things that you talked about, I can relate why that's happening, why you're presenting that way back from this lens. But menopause is no different when you think about where steroidogenesis happens and what needs to occur, what signals need to be received in order for all of that to run smoothly. Right. Okay. So, and menopause is, as you've been saying, like a hormonal situation. And you talked about the, the virtuous cycle between the hormones and the mitochondria. And so from the perspective that, 
that we look at things <laughs> here on this podcast. Um, we can't really talk about hormone regulation without talking about circadian regulation. Like those two things have now become so inextricably linked in my mind because that's how they are inextricably linked. So just give us a, you know, a sort of a high level overview of why circadian rhythm matters so much to hormone regulation and hormone regulation matters so much to menopause, obviously, but that circadian piece, like, Mm -hmm. Yes. So basically we know that um, the day is split between performance mode and repair mode. Right. And we, and, and even that basic, those basic functions are driven by light and dark and there are hormones that are responsible for that. But if I go even further upstream from even having the cortisol melatonin conversation, we talk about pregnenolone. When light shines in the eye in the morning, that is the signal for pregnenolone to be made in that inner mitochondrial membrane. And then from pregnenolone, we know that there are two pathways. The stress pathway, where we make cortisol, wakes us up in the morning. And then in an ideal world, you're pretty balanced with making reproductive hormones, our sex hormones. Um that whole signal is dependent upon us knowing that what time of day it is in order to induce that production of these hormones. As the day goes on, midday, we start to get UVB light um, with blue light. And that's kind of the, the blue light predominance at solar noon is when we know, okay, I'm about to transition into the second half of my day where I need to start preparing for night. So that UVB signal is what tells the body, okay, we've made all these hormones. Let's time to wrap it up and, you know, wind them down so that we can prepare for the evening. And this signal is so important for us to be interdependent upon the light signals that we're getting. Because in the morning time, when I'm, when my eye receives that, you know, blue and red balance that says, wake up, I'm producing these hormones. In the middle of the day, I start to get the signal that it's time to wrap it up and slowly, you know, detoxify these hormones so that I can get into my repair hormones at nighttime. And then the next day, um, I'm starting the cycle over with. So when you're, when you're dealing with, um, the problems that we see a lot, even before menopause, right? We talked about this earlier before we got on the call about, um, even some of the imbalances that I see in the in a female's reproductive years, whether that's PCOS or endometriosis or ovarian mm-hmm. cysts, you know, and then unfortunately, in, in some cases, cancer these days more often than we would like to face, right? Yeah. What is happening is that this orchestra has been disrupted for one reason or another, whether that's someone not being exposed to adequate light during the day or most of the time, this is what we're seeing in modern times is that we're getting too much artificial light at nighttime. And so our brain is completely confused about how to read what time of day it is when I have blue light present, which signals, you know, um, peak hormone production without Mm -hmm. the, that tells it to start scavenging it up and getting rid of it. So now I have women and men, but women in particular, because we already have so much estrogen around, um, having excess estrogen. And that's before I have a conversation about um, all of the other estrogen mimickers in our environment. And so we get into trouble with excess hormones. 
Um, that is, you have to tell me how, how deep you want to get into this, because this is something that I have to consider when I'm replacing someone's estrogen as well. And why it's so important for them to, um, have an adequate circadian rhythm. Right. So the circadian rhythm is like the, the conductor of the orchestra and the hormones are all the instruments in the, in the symphony or the orchestra. So that's, yeah, go ahead. Even, even more so. So so the circadian rhythm is the is the orchestra, and then the mitochondria is the factory mm-hmm. for making them. So um, I have to have the signaling appropriate, so I know how to direct traffic about about the hormones. But then you also have to have healthy mitochondria in order to produce the hormones, because if they're damaged, um, or or your body is perceiving any type of stress, automatically you're going to shunt that factory over to make more stress hormones to help you overcome this perceived threat. And our body is so smart that it's going to think, I don't need to focus on reproduction and sex hormones right now when for whatever reason, I'm under some type of threat or I don't have enough energy to bring in another generation, I'm going to threaten myself. So Mm -hmm. survival wins. And that branch that we talked about from pregnenolone is going to shunt entirely over to the cortisol pathway. I see. And then you're seeing fertility issues yes fertility issues if someone's trying to conceive conceive but i also see a lot of women that maybe aren't maybe aren't trying to conceive but they are their hormones all over the place you know their cycles are irregular or um you know they're symptomatic for one reason or another because some of these actual pathologies are presenting themselves whether that's severe pain from endometriosis or um ovarian cysts um, or in the case of PCOS, there's a whole element of, um, the insulin and blood sugar dysregulation that comes into play that leads to unwanted hair in your face and, you know, changes in body composition that are unwarranted and things like that. So, um, it's, even though we're, we're seeing a tremendous impact in fertility in younger and younger women now, because of this conversation, there's, there are other things too, that bring a lot of women through the door in that reproductive time period. Right. So how important would would you say when you see your patients and let's just let's just say they're wide open the way a, a podcast listener would be like they're wide open. Mm-hmm. How how crucial is it to lay the foundation of a regulated circadian rhythm? It is an absolute must. If you want to be optimal, which is why why people eventually come to the doctor because, you know, people don't love coming to the doctor. I get that. I don't like going to the doctor. I mean, personally, but by the time that someone's coming through the door, they're usually like, I, I, I need to address this because it's becoming enough of a nuisance in my life that I need to figure out how to, to address it. And if you want to have an optimal situation, you're going to have to put these things into place first because if I don't have the messages of directing traffic, um, what's going to happen when I just throw in some hormones from exogenously that my body didn't produce? Either you're going to you're going to get in a situation where the hormones are just fluctuating constantly. So you're like mm-hmm. constantly tuning, you know, and if I'm checking labs, I'm like, you're all over the place. It's like and, and that can be scary when you see an estrogen through the roof because you don't have enough mitochondrial capacity to detoxify it you're not detoxifying it. So it's just stockpiling in your blood and 
if I'm not living in sync, hey, what does that mean? We're hospitable to all of the other things we're trying to avoid as well. Cancer being a big one. So I don't, I don't want to put myself in that situation. So I have this conversation with all of my women about how important it is to respect that rhythm and live in congruence with it because us taking exogenous hormones is still not ideal. I'm never going to be able to mimic nature 100%. We try to as much as possible. We try to say, hey, we know that these hormones are pulsed. So giving it topically over um, a fatty area allows it to kind of release slowly, but it's still not perfect because, you know, in natural physiology, there are other messages that are coming in and there's a significant amount of fine tuning that's happening on a a constant basis that Mm -hmm. I can't mimic with medication. But that's okay. Women can get pretty significant response in a positive way if they do these other things and work with their physiology. If I'm working against it in a physiology that already is experiencing chaos, so to speak, and here I am just throwing in another cell communicator, it it it, it just is not, it's not perfect. And that's when the women say, I got on hormones and you know, my breasts hurt and I couldn't take it or I had headaches or I got bloated from the progesterone or something like that because there's not this there's not this um synchronous you know right. experience with my physiology however when I can get all of those other hormonal signals in place and I have mitochondria that are as optimal as they can be depending on your situation I mean look as much as we want to be ideal we get it right yeah. Moms are running up and down the highway like me this morning trying to take the kids to <laughs> um, You don't want to get enough sleep to try to basketball game at 10 o'clock at night, like, the, you know, 100 miles away or something like that. Or, you know, your meeting ran over and you didn't eat lunch. There's, there's just things that happen in, in our modern world that we wish that we lived in this perfect rhythm all the time. Um, and we don't. And not to mention we have assaults that we can't account for. But the things that we can't account for, we have to try to... Um, control those as best that we can so that we can just get as optimal of situation as possible. And our bodies aren't broken. So I tell patients all the time, I'm not expecting you to be perfect. Okay. Perfection is not it. But even raising people's awareness about this to where in the moment they're making more mindful decisions can make a huge difference in their success with hormone replacement therapy, doing what they want it to do. Right. And that makes total sense because if you're hormones are in total chaos and the mitochondria producing your hormones are dysfunctional. And so you don't have enough of what you need, but yeah. And then you throw in exogenous. It's like, how, how is that system supposed to work itself out? So the foundation is to regulate circadian rhythm, lots Mm -hmm. of natural light during the day and very minimal artificial light at night. Just that alone will lay the foundation to potentially, depending on your life, not need them, or if you do need them, to have yes. them work much better and have it be able be easier for the your, for the doctor to track and know what to give 100%. you exactly. And then the other okay. the other point of this is that when even in the conventional model, we always talk about the least dose for the least amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. So the less exposure that I have, the less likelihood of a side effect. So. If I'm in balance and my mitochondria are topped off as much as they can be, and there's some minimal amount of baseline um, medication that it's pumping out or hormone they're pumping out, that's less that I have to supplement with. You know, right. so in our conventional training, 
when it's like go to the pharmacy and use just the couple of um, commercially available products for every single woman, I learned really quickly what a difference that made when I was following these women's labs and how this dose was suboptimal for one patient and it had this other patient markedly overdosed. So, you know, these are all the questions that you're asking because, hey, there's there's an individual in front of me that looks different than the next person. And so- Having an awareness of that, also having an awareness of how people respond. But when you have conversations about someone who um, may like eat super late at night and binge drink on the weekend, <laughs> having these huge fluctuations in their hormone levels versus someone who tries to live in as much of a rhythm as possible, mm-hmm. you're going to see a huge difference in the swings there. So why would that be? Well, we know that in addition to the central nervous system consuming a lot of energy, what else consumes a lot of energy is these organs of detoxification. I'm putting in exogenous hormone that my body didn't produce and asking my liver and other organs to clear it out in an appropriate way. So I have to get the signal of when to clear it out. And I have to have, again, the mitochondrial energy to detoxify everything I'm exposed to every single day. If I'm adding more toxins in or not living in a way that allows that process to happen optimally, I'm going to have swings on some days where I'm doing better than other days. You're going to see like where you can clear it out and your levels here, but then on other times it's up here. And so Mm. when a lady comes in symptomatically and feels unhinged because their symptoms are that way, sometimes I'm feeling like my breasts are going to explode. And other times I'm feeling like I'm not getting enough. Why is that? It's a lot harder to chase an optimal dose if someone isn't being mindful of all of these other things that go into play for how these hormones are being experienced by the body. Right. Okay. And this really makes so much sense. So if our mitochondria are stressed and overloaded and dysfunctional due to all these other um, stressors, then yeah, then the symptom, the menopausal symptoms are getting more extreme and the our response to any kind of medication or hormones is going to be inconsistent. Absolutely. Because, you know, okay. when we talk about this root cause, Meredith, we're, we, we all roads for us here go back to systems biology, right? So, so we haven't even gotten into, um, you know, the thyroid's impact on this and, mm-hmm. you know, insulin and leptin signaling's impact on hormone replacement therapy or, or just hormones in general if we go back to the mitochondria and the rhythm, we are impacting all of those organs, all of those systems simultaneously, and all of these systems are interconnected. So we can have conversations about how all of these other things also impact hormone production, how hormones are experienced. But again, do I need to? If I, if the person is really going far enough upstream to do all the things that we're telling them to do? No, because all of those symptoms are impacted at the same time in a positive way when someone's living the lifestyle that we promote. Okay. And I I just want to take a minute to highlight how ahead of the curve this conversation is. <laughs> I mentioned I listened to some other menopause podcasts Um just to kind of wrap my head around some of the general stuff. And there's some very knowledgeable people. And I, I learned a lot. Um, there is one in particular, the talk show host, Kelly Ripa had her, her doctor on who does her hormones, who is a delightful woman. I learned a lot from her, but none of them, none of them 
acknowledged the role of circadian rhythm and light. Now the the doctor, oh, I'm forgetting her name on the Kelly Reaper podcast. She did in the hour plus interview, she mentioned circadian rhythm for like five seconds as, you know, like, oh, you want to pay attention to lifestyle and yeah, circadian rhythm, whatever. But, I, but that was kind of it. So this conversation that we're having is unusual. And I just want to say that because sometimes I have people listen to the podcast or join our community and they go out and like Google things or start talking to regular doctors. They're like, what are you talking about? What is even what light signaling? What, what does that have to do with anything? So I just want to make that clear that this is, um, this is not a mainstream conversation. Oh, by, even by, though I mean, we we all want it to be, <laughs> we want it to be so desperately. But it's like when I sent you that message the other day about the post you made about longevity medicine in general. Because again, we have a Nobel Prize on chronobiology and and these conversations, and yet um, as advanced as we've gotten in certain ways, like we don't, we still don't have this foundational element brought up in a lot of these health optimization conversations, right? And I know for me, sometimes it's the same thing. If I'm talking to a colleague about it, it's like, they look at me like I have three heads and it's hard sometimes. It can be lonely as a practitioner. And we've talked about this before too. Thank God for the Quantum Biology Collective. But when I'm used to being in more of an academic environment where we're talking about these things and bouncing ideas off of each other, it's it can be lonely because you don't have that um, resource in a lot of these conversations anymore, at least from, from this part of it, because you'll have like dense science from every other aspect and angle of addressing certain things, hormones included. But if you have a progressive doctor, like you said, they'll mention it briefly and they're like, oh yeah, rhythm is important. But we're not really stressing like how foundational it is to these mitochondria in their appropriate glands receiving the instructions and giving the the organs the timing because timing is so important. Right. You know, and that comes and that comes from light. That comes and from you, light. That comes from light. Light matters so much. I just want to just want to hammer that home one more time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because when you think okay. about just how much how much artificial light exposure at nighttime in particular can derail this whole process and actually put you at risk. It's really, really frightening, you know? So that's, that's completely outside of the conversation about, yes, I should be seeing sunrise in order to talk to the factory about producing things. And, you know, that's one thing that's like how you want to feel the optimal component of it. But look, so many women come in and their biggest fear about hormone replacement therapy, thanks to that women's health study is, you know, am I going to get cancer if I take this? Right. And having them trying to explain that when you're taking bioidentical hormones that your body should be making on its own, those are not causing cancer. But what is the state of the metabolism that I'm putting these things in? Because if I have a metabolism that is hospitable to cancer, and it just so happens to be a gynecologic cancer that has hormone receptors on it, if I'm taking a hormone, it's going to feed it. It didn't cause it, mm. but it can feed it. So right. we still have a responsibility of taking care of ourselves so that we're not having a physiology hospitable to these cancers because it's 
the development of cancer that this hormone could feed, but the hormone didn't cause it. Just like if I was making it endogenously, you know, if a woman is carrying extra body fat, for example, and they're they're um, producing estrogen from the aromatase enzyme, and then their metabolism is welcoming to cancer. Same concept that cancer can be fed from that excess estrogen. Wow. So, and and we, yeah, I mean, we're we're worried about taking this. I had a woman, I had a friend tell me that she heard about. Uh, all the women were on bioidentical hormones. So she went to her doctor and her doctor was like, no, I don't, I won't do it. That causes cancer. Right. So we're, we're so worried. I'm like, you should talk to another doctor. (laughs) So we're so worried about these things causing cancer. And yet the absolute biggest risk. And I dug into this in in a podcast with Dr. Martin Moore who is a circadian researcher at Harvard for many years. And he just, he's like artificial light at night is the the research is irrefutable. It is. It will cause. It will. Yeah. It will switch on the cancer more than so many other things that we spend much more time worrying about. And you know, it's, it's sometimes when you're a nerd. Okay, you spend a lot of time. I think, and I'm I'm guilty of this of just being overly analytical about a lot of things. The beautiful part about quantum biology is the simplification of things because even mm-hmm. though. Like we said, there's a lot of complexity. If you really want to get into the nitty gritty of like this enzyme, this hormone, this biochemical reaction of how this is occurring, at the end of the day, it all goes back to, you know, this communication, organizing the orchestra, so to speak. And when we stay true to that, it all works itself out. But all roads lead back to this whole having a balance of being in performance mode and being in repair mode. What does artificial light at night do? It robs us of that repair mode. Right. So that detoxification repair is just not happening optimally. Right. And that brings up something else I wanted to talk about. So light, obviously I did want to touch on food because it's important, Mm -hmm. but I also wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier and that you know, we're bringing up now with, with artificial light and how it interferes with that. And that's the importance of rest or restorative time. Yes. Um, I see you're, you're wearing an aura ring. I also have an aura ring. I did not want to get one. I was like, I hate gadgets. I hate numbers. I hate tracking <laughs> things. I, I hate it all. I'm like, I was like, like, I'm very intuitive. I'm like, oh. but I got it. I'm glad I did. Um, Jim Laird, who's a trainer, like helped me decipher what it was telling me. And one of, you know, the reasons I didn't want to get it, I'm like, it's just going to tell me to exercise more. I know, I know, whatever. (laughs) But I got this thing and it was like, uh, sending me these little messages. Uh, you did not have enough restorative time today. Uh, you didn't rest enough. Uh, you're not going to be productive tomorrow because you did not stop all day long. And I was like, what? And I realized that I really had no sense of what restorative time meant, like, or what it meant to rest. And I saw this beautiful quote recently. It was like on somebody's water bottle or something. And it said, learn to rest so you don't have to quit. That's beautiful. I'm like, that's good, right? And like, that's what our bodies need, right? Like, they're just quitting on us because they're like, we are done. We're going and going. Yeah. We're going and going. So tell us about like 
the importance of rest and then just what that what that looks like, right? Because I'd be like, well, you know, I kind of listened to a podcast while I unloaded the dishwasher. And it's like, no. <laughs> like it, so it's like you have to like like sit down, like have some tea, like what does it truly mean? And and it doesn't have to be hours, like like just to like build that into our day, what would that look like? You know, this is actually a really, really awesome conversation um, and really important for a number of things. Cause I just built this weight loss course for um, my, uh, my audience and we're about to launch it in the next week or so. And oh, same concept, right? Because like a lot of times we get so caught up on what you're eating and how much you're exercising. We don't have a conversation about how many women I see that come in here and barely eat enough food and, you know, exercise probably too much because they're overstressed. And that overstress is what is really responsible for a lot of the metabolic dysregulation they're experiencing. So in light of this conversation with hormones, same concept, because we know what picks up the slack, right? These adrenal glands after, um, after menopause. And if I'm burnt because I'm not adequately rested, how do I expect that factory to still do what it's supposed to do? And so a lot of times when we're talking about sleep, what Aura really opened my eyes to is like, not just the sleep, but like you're saying, this concept of rest. So at minimum, we should be experiencing eight hours of darkness um, in order to have our hormones, you know, understand that this is the time where I need to to drive repair. But more importantly than that, um, when we talk about rest, the metabolism needs to rest which is why we're telling people stop eating, you know, after right. the sun down so that metabolism rests and you are creating those few hours before um, our running the dishwasher autophagy time period at nighttime. So digestion and metabolism needs rest. That's one aspect of this conversation. But the other aspect of the conversation is just, you know, again, this cortisol melatonin access in general, because we want cortisol to be at a, in abundance during the day but we also want it to be put to bed, so to speak, so melatonin can come do its thing at nighttime. And I think what Aura, what I what I love Aura is because one, it evaluates sleep. And am I getting enough REM sleep? Am I getting enough deep sleep to even allow autophagy to happen? You know? Mm-hmm. And then are those habits before I go to bed, am I doing anything artificial light-wise, eating-wise that are sending the wrong signals that would interfere with that happening? That's one aspect of it. But the other aspect is, like you said, are we burning the candle at both ends? What's my heart rate variability? Am I just overstressed because I just didn't stop? Um, And now I'm pumping out so much cortisol during the day that even if I am doing these things at nighttime, is it so much cortisol abundance that it's hard for melatonin to overcome anyway? So I'm getting a blunted melatonin response because I'm just overdoing it too much. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it. That's a legitimate conversation because I, I think that um, I can't tell you how many times that, you know, mama bear, I'm at a game. I'm seeing the kids like, you know, go through this like battle zone on the court or something. Or I know we worked on something and I'm like wanting so desperately for them to like learn the lesson. And I will get a message from Aura being like, you don't need to exercise today because you exercised too much last night. And I'm like, I didn't exercise yesterday. <laughs> no, yeah. but my heart rate was up and yeah. I was like, you know, running from work to this game. And then I'm like all in the game and it's intense. And it's, we don't have an awareness. I think a lot of us don't have an awareness about 
the type of stress that our bodies are under. I cannot tell you how yeah. many, um, especially healthcare providers, you know, I saw an ER nurse yesterday. I'm not really stressed. You're an ER nurse. Okay. I'm married. Yeah. I know what you guys are dealing with life and death constantly. And on the way in this morning, Meredith spoke to my husband. He's like, I have four strokes in the emergency room right now. And um, someone having an MI, I can't talk. Okay. Okay. So, yes, that's his every day, but that's a lot, you know, and how much of us are dealing with this kind of stuff all the time and not taking adequate breaks to recenter and regroup. So I know there's always a, a balance of like, you know, wearing tech and the radiation and whatnot. And, you know, we want, we want to, of course, balance that, but it can be very, very useful for allowing us to have an awareness, raise our awareness about physiologically, are you stressed or not? Because it's really mm -hmm. not about perception. It is about what yeah. your body's perception is. And right. if you're stressed out and your body is things that thinks that it's stress and it's under threat, we're going to disrupt all of these things that we're talking about. Right. That And that is such a key point, right? It's not your perception. It's your body's experience. Because mm -hmm. the, I keep having this conversation <laughs> where, I'm, you know, I'll have something happen and it's like, yeah, that's probably stress induced. I'm like, I'm not stressed. <laughs> it's like, so and yet your shoulder seized up <laughs> and all of you, you know, and yet, you know, and then we ran like uh, some, we did an HTME, like a hair mineral analysis. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, it was like, there was, it was, yes, the profile was of a highly stressed person. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really, really important, right? It's like, yeah, it's not our perception. It's like, what is, what is our body telling us? And, and look, it's given me so much respect. I love my men. I do, but I have a special place in my heart for the women that I see because the average woman that I'm seeing is juggling so much, but yet yeah. it's just what we do, you know? Yeah. So we don't think again, and like, I don't feel, I'm not like, right. like, Oh, all day long. Like I'm just living it's my life, you know. but yeah, it's like, Oh, I'm going to unload the dishwasher and I'm going to work on the computer and I'm going to pick up the kids and then I'm going to make dinner and then I'm going to do And it's like, Oh yeah, no, I didn't really like, just like sit down it's and it, and it can be like five or 10 minutes, right? Like we're not talking like taking hours out of the day to relax. Right. Like, Oh, what I have noticed is like, you know, yeah, like sitting outside on a chair or, or a gentle walk, 10 minutes even is like, makes a huge difference. A hundred percent. Look, and when we talk about meditation, the meditation literature or some, a device like heart math, for example, that has 30 years of research behind mm -hmm. it, they're reinforcing that concept of just yeah. having a few minutes, even a few minutes, a couple of times a day. I mean, what do we know about meditation? Like a short meditation round can actually give you more restoration than even a full night's sleep. So it doesn't take a lot, but it's yeah. a priority that we all need to have. And I wish I could tell you that I was great at it, but I'm not. So yeah, I don't need something that I need to be better at, if, especially if yeah. we're having the conversation we had earlier about wanting to equip ourselves in the best position possible as we navigate menopause one day, you know, yeah. um, knowing what we know about what's going to pick up the slack. Rest is huge. Right. Okay. So light rest. And then I do want to, I do want to talk about food before we yep. wrap. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And from a circadian perspective, there's regulating our circadian rhythms is light, but food is also a a circadian signal. So just, just from a timing perspective, and then we can talk a bit about like what to actually eat, but from a timing perspective, what is a circadian optimized eating look like? So from a timing perspective, um, we have to look at ingestion of food as another circadian signal. So um, we want to basically use the timing of our food to reinforce what we're trying to accomplish with creating this solid circadian signaling in our body so we can delineate, again, performance mode and it's time to repair. And so um, having breakfast um, close to when we see sunrise would be ideal. I mean, definitely within the hour would be ideal. And then, um, you know, lunch timing, not as, not as important. I don't think, I, I think, think that midday sometime, you know, having, having lunch to reinforce that, um, middle of the day, but I think the middle of the day, you have a little bit more forgiveness, but in the evening time, we definitely want to wrap up our, um, calorically dense meals before the sun sets. And the reason why we want to do that is um number one, we know that our metabolism in general is supposed to slow down as darkness um, approaches because we have another job to do. We don't want food and digestion, which is very um energetically demanding, to rob us of that energy from our repair. So, you know, in our practice, when we're constantly all roads lead back to health optimization and keeping our cells functioning as youthfully as possible. That is a big part of that conversation because in order to do that, you have to be able to have autophagy occur at nighttime. And if I'm equipping myself in every other way, but I'm expending, you know, 30, 40% of my energetic reserve still trying to digest food that I consumed at eight or 10 o'clock at night, you can imagine I'm not going to be as efficient in the process of, you know, cellular diagnoses and repair. And I want that to happen as possible as, as as optimally as possible. So timing is very important that that's before you get into, um, you know, the deeper conversations behind intermittent fasting and fasting and what that does, because you can certainly push, push this, push this topic even further by mm-hmm. dealing with that, but on an everyday basis, just for respecting circadian rhythm, we need to eat with the light. Okay. So what would you say would be like the minimum amount of time that you'd want to have between eating dinner and going to sleep? Um, At least three hours, but I think more than that would be beneficial. Yeah. I mean, if I could have at least three hours before eating in bed. Yeah. Because I want to have about six hours between eating and autophagy happening during our deep sleep window. Okay. So autophagy happens when we're sleeping. That's when our cells get cleaned and repaired and all the good stuff happens. If we eat yes. too close to bedtime, we take energy away from that process towards digesting. So we wake up feeling less refreshed. Absolutely. I know. And there's a hormonal yeah. response too, because there's a cortisol spike every time that we eat. So um, I don't want to have a cortisol spike that will blunt my melatonin response that calls to action this whole process as well. You know, this is right. the reason why um, artificial light at night is a problem anyway, because it, it, it's another reason why we would spike a cortisol at night and disrupt this process. 
Right. And that while we're talking, yeah. So while we're talking about time, circadian timed eating, food is a circadian signal, light is a circadian signal. So just like eating late at night is going to have a different effect on our body than eating that exact same food earlier in the day. Having yes. artificial light at night is having a similar effect as of eating sugar or something that spikes our blood sugar. Exactly. Like we are, you know, and I see a lot of, I hear about a lot of women getting type two diabetes as well, like postmenopausally. Yes. So that could be a contributing factor if you're spiking your blood sugar with blue light at night. Exactly. And this is another thing that's at this point irrefutable. Just because it's not mainstream doesn't mean it's not well-established in the science. Yes. Yes, that's true. And if, yeah, if you go in PubMed, there are like thousands of studies on various versions of this for sure. Yes. Okay. So, so we want to eat during the day. We want to have breakfast. So we wake up, go outside, natural light on our eyeballs, then have breakfast, finish eating as early in the day as we can. And then in terms of foods, Mm -hmm. um, do our needs change around this time, around menopause time? And is, are there certain foods that are really become more important? Would you say just a few highlights? Yes. So, um, it varies to some degree to pay, depending on the person sitting in front of me, but I will say that number one, um, eating foods that are in season is very important. And so this time of year, as we are approaching these winter months and carbohydrates, for example, are, would not be as abundant in nature, especially depending on where you live. I mean, I'm in the South, so I I have probably a little bit more access than someone who's, you know, in New York. Right. Yeah. Um, but eating the foods that would grow in your environment so that again, you can also replicate the circadian signal is important. So I think a lot of times we get caught up on, um, what diet am I supposed to be on? But um, the general recommendation needs to be accepting that that diet is going to change throughout the year, depending on the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. So we get we get really caught up in, I'm going to eat this way all the time, and this is the right diet. But we have to understand that environment always has to be taken into account for whatever we're doing. So that's the first step for me. Now, if I have um, women that come in that have extra body fat or um their say their leptin's higher than it should be i'm going to have a different conversation with them than women who have you know low leptin and low insulin versus high leptin and high insulin we might tweak those uh foods that are available during that time period to support correction if there's a if there's an imbalance um imbalance there and during menopause again because we're seeing like um metabolism changes Women do come in and say like, hey, you know, I mean, the same things I used to eat, but like I am carrying a little bit more body fat in certain areas. Part of that, I think, is an adaptive process because we know that um, hormones are made from fat. We can aromatize fat to make estrogen. And so um, the more, again, that we are living in a way that is supportive of optimal hormone production, the less drive you'll see to hold on to that body fat in order to give me another resource to make hormones. Because your body wants you to have enough to uh, still function optimally. So it has these backup plans 
And we need to create an environment where we don't need to necessarily fall back on those. I don't need you to carry extra body fat because my mitochondria are healthy and I'm living in balance with circadian rhythm. So don't need to do that. But that's what starts to happen as those hormones dip is that we start to like, okay, well, what other resources do I have to still try to keep some level of hormone around? And um, hey, those backup plans are not always what we want. <laughs> right. We're like living off the off the backup generator. Yes, exactly. <laughs> which is only designed to work for a short period of time. <laughs> so I, I tell okay. most of the women the first the first most important thing is the timing of food. Mm -hmm. The second, the second thing is, um, you know, eating in season. And then I will tweak that based on their complaints and what I'm seeing. Um, but in general, I would say most women during menopause are not, are not complaining about being too thin or having too little body fat. They're complaining about the opposite. Okay. And so, um, every, everything that we can do to stabilize that, um, blood sugar axis is what we need to do first. And so, you know, I'm not, I, I don't really like to put patients on an overly restrictive diet, but I would say, especially in the morning time, when we know cortisol is spiking, um, having the conversations around not doing things that can, that further the spike and further an insulin roller coaster is best. So that would be number one eating period, because a lot of women don't eat breakfast, you know? Yeah. Um, but secondly, eating a meal that is going to keep your blood sugar on the lower side, because what we find is that when women have a blood sugar stabilizing breakfast, it really stabilizes them for the rest of the day. Whereas if I eat a high sugar breakfast, I really can kickstart the roller coaster for the rest of the day, even if I'm, you know, eating better the rest of the day. So we try to say like a higher fat higher protein meal for breakfast. Um, and I try to get my ladies to not skip breakfast. And I try not, I try to get them. Cause I mean, even if the ones that are really trying hard and going to watch the sunrise, want to take a cup of coffee outside with them before they eat mm -hmm. and they're getting, um, this caffeine load that is exacerbating that cortisol curve. And, um, okay. this is not just relevant for menopause. This is relevant for hormone balance in general, because again, I don't, I don't want an overly an overactive uh, stress axis because it's right. going to interfere with so much. Okay. And that's really helpful too, because I, I love my cup of coffee. Exactly. I just love it. So I was always, <laughs> that was always the one thing I'll, over the years, I've seen so many different health practitioners and I was like, I'll do this, I'll do that. I'm like, you can't touch my coffee. <laughs> but I, I love this. So many times, yeah. I cannot it's tell you. Like, lovingly I, yeah. <laughs> so I love it. this because I'm like, okay, light, then a bit, then breakfast. And so, and then it's like, then I have the coffee like an hour after I've woken up or a little more, like after I've done those other things first and that's it's, perfect. I do have decaf, but, but yeah. So that's what you, you were saying with quantum biology being simple and flexible, right? Like, it's like, it's not like this yeah. bad. And, and yeah, look, maybe some people shouldn't drink it. coffee. Yeah. I don't know, but some people probably shouldn't. I mean, it just, it just depends on the person, but like most, most people, um, I mean, you don't want them having like a pot or two of coffee a day, which I see, you know, Right. Um, but for me, I just kind of look at it like, okay, you got up in the morning, you watched the sunrise, you had your breakfast and it was appropriate. Now your cup of coffee is like your little yeah. treat to be like, yeah, <laughs> and it's, I actually, and it's actually nice because I enjoy it more. Cause like the rush yes. of the morning's over, I'm like exactly. not hungry. I'm like, I take a few minutes and just, 
I mean, sometimes I drink it on a Zoom call, but usually I try to like be outside or by yeah. an open window and like a little, yeah, it's like a little, a little moment. A hundred percent. Even my children are like, don't talk to her. It's coffee moment. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I need another eight minutes. <laughs> um. Oh my gosh. This was so, so good. And so, so helpful. Um, just amazing. Is there anything that you would like to say or share before we wrap up? Yes. I just want to tell women that, um, number one, we get into this almost, uh, punitive or shaming or guilt, you know, type of scenario if we're not perfect. And I want to stress to women that like, I don't want you guys to put that burden on yourself. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of doing it too. And you don't fail if you need to have home replacement therapy, number one, you know, to mitigate some of these symptoms. I mean, the beautiful part about scientific advancements is that it's given us um, the opportunity to keep us more comfortable, improve our quality of life and mitigate symptoms, despite all of the things that modern society has done to disrupt these natural signals. Right. But we're having this conversation just because I want you to know that um, it's okay. But if you want to, again, experience the best of both worlds, how important it is to still always honor um, the rhythm that's in place and our physiology and its needs. Because when you do that, these things that we take in are more in line to benefit us without experiencing the side effects that are, you know, are preached to us constantly. And the second part about it is the way that many integrative physicians are prescribing hormone replacement therapy, we're not prescribing synthetic, you know, um, hormones that are coming from an animal that has a different estrogen structure molecularly than bioidentical, right? Um, And secondly, we're giving it topically. So the research topically shows that We don't have to worry about the blood clotting that we do when we take estrogen orally and it causes certain metabolites that, Mm -hmm. you know, cause issues. Um, And we have, we have the, the benefit of having years and years and years of research in Europe because they always did it that way, you know, transdermally, Mm -hmm. whether that's a compound and now we have patches and stuff commercially available. So I use those. um, And we do everything else that we can to keep you safe you know, being that we're monitoring your levels, we're monitoring how you're metabolizing your estrogen. We are talking to you about your symptoms. It is not just the blanket. Everybody gets the same thing. See you later. We don't check on it for a year. If As long as you have all the all those things in place, you are equipped to benefit tremendously from those symptoms that we talked about, whether that's bone health, brain health, um, vaginal health, joint health, skin health, you know, so it's okay to take it. It's just a matter of doing all those other things too. And um, self-care and you feeling yourself is so important for quality of life. So don't hesitate to talk about it with your doctor. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think that's really important, especially in, you know, those of us who are really dedicated to natural living and believe that nature knows like this is a complex topic. And for me, the bottom line is nature does know best, but I don't live in a fully natural environment. So I might have to. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that bioidentical hormones are different from the hormones that were on the market 
30 years ago that caused problems. And they're also different from birth control pills, which a lot of doctors just throw at everything. And birth 100%. control pills don't don't work for these things for birth all of those are essentially those same things that we, you know, quit. Um, well, I shouldn't say quit because I'm not going to still prescribe it, but that we that we know caused all those problems, number one. And number two, they're given orally. Estrogen should not be given by mouth. Okay. So by so bioidentical and have it, it needs to go somewhere transdermally, like on the skin as a patch or a cream or a gel or an oil or something like or that. Or intravaginal or something like that. But yeah, okay. not, not my mouth. Okay. Very important points. And yeah, and I think, I think, yeah, the bottom line is, is there are a lot of things that we can personally do to feel better if we just have the right information and then whatever we need from the miracles of modern medicine (laughs) at the end of the day. Yeah. Like we're allowed to make choices that result in us feeling good and having a quality of life and having a life that we feel happy about most of the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Candice, thank you so much. And thank you for all you do your, your dedication and, um, commitment to to intellectual curiosity is just, I mean, you're very, it's a stunning example. You're a stunning example in the medical world. I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate what you've created and the support that it's given to positions like me to where we don't feel so alone. And um, to be able to develop our own standard of care for this type of medicine, because it resonates so much with so many people. And I find so many women and men that just want this type of care, want to be able to have the nuanced conversation about how to blend modern advancements with, you know, what physiology intended. And you've created an environment and a platform for us to have these conversations with each other. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Hugs. Hugs. And I wanted to say thanks to my friend, Julie, for sending me the Kelly Reaper menopause podcast. It helped me form a lot of my questions. And I wanted to say thanks to Sarah in Dubai, who emailed in and asked for this as a topic and got (laughs) put me in gear because I'd had it on the back burner. So thanks, Julie. Thanks, Sarah. And especially thank you, Candice. And we were having so much fun. I forgot to cover this inside the episode. Uh, Dr. Knight sees people in person in Southern Louisiana at her clinic, uh, but she also sees people virtually. So the link to her website is in the show notes, show notes, nightwellness.com. And you can make an appointment with her and get access to her wisdom via Zoom. She has a fabulous setup. She has uh, a coach on staff as well, which is her sister, Dana. And the two of them take really, really good care of people. I highly recommend it. This has been the Quantum Biology Collective Podcast. To find a practitioner who works from this point of view, visit our directory at quantumbiologycollective.org. If you are a practitioner, definitely check out our Applied Quantum Biology Certification to consider as part of your continuing education plan. You can also just jump into our email community. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that's at quantumbiologycollective.org.